The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 10.45 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I invite you to open your Bibles to Titus chapter 2. Today's message is probably going to be like something that you have never heard before in terms of Christmas. I've entitled the message, The Second Advent. The Second Advent. And today's message is going to be more teaching than preaching, so we're going to be all over your Bible. So get your Bible handy. Uh, I think I have a handout for y'all. If you didn't get that, many of the verses I'll reference are in, in the handout. But the reason why I wanted to do a message on the second advent is, is first, Christians have always seen the first advent, which is the coming of Christ that we're celebrating this time of year, as pointing forward to the second advent, that there were prophecies regarding Christ's first advent, and there are many more prophecies pointing forward to Christ's second advent. So just as sure as Christ's first advent came, which it did, we are looking forward to Christ's second advent. In fact, one of the songs that we sang earlier points to just that. You remember Joy to the World? You might not know this, but Joy to the World is not about the first advent of Christ. It's about the second advent of Christ. Think about it. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room in heaven and nature. He's talking about us, preparing our hearts for the Lord's coming. Just so you have a little bit of perspective regarding how emphasized the Lord's second coming is in Scripture, for every verse that addresses the Lord's first coming, there's eight that address the second coming. So the ratio is eight to one. One out of every 30 verses in the entire Bible references the Lord's second coming. So that's the first reason, is that Christmas has pointed the saints forward to the Lord's second coming. Second, we need to be reminded in the midst of this dark world that the Lord is returning. Is it not dark? It is a dark, dark world. And we need to be reminded of the fact that Jesus wins. He wins. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. That right now Christ is reigning and he will reign in heaven at the right hand of God the Father until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And what that means for the Christian right now is it might seem like we're losing. It might seem like we're losing. Remember Muhammad Ali? The guy would, his opponent would get him on the ropes, the rope-a-dope, and it would look like just for a split second that Ali was going to lose but he was just letting his opponent get the punches in. 
and then he was going to come back and win. That's what Christ is doing right now. He's letting Satan get his punches in. And for believers, it's easy to, to lose perspective of that. Peter says this, 1 Peter 4.12, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. His glory is his second coming. So our hope in this world as we encounter suffering, persecution, isn't defeat. It's victory. Jesus is going to return and conquer his enemies. And third, third, we must stay vigilant in this world as we wait the Lord's return. Here's where I want you to look at Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 10. Titus 2, actually verse 11, excuse me, verse 11, verse 11. He says, for the grace of God has appeared. That word appeared is the Greek word epiphany. You've maybe heard of that. That's a, a, a Christmas word. It means to, to, um, to become disclosed, to, to show up. And, and here, Paul's clearly referencing Christ's first coming. He says, for the grace of God, it appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And then that trains us, he says, to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Now look at this, 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing, same word, epiphany, of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is that we need to be watchful. We need to be ready. We need to be waiting because we are looking forward to this blessed hope of the Lord returning. Any of you study American history, you remember the Minutemen. Samuel Adams commissioned what was called the Minutemen. The Minutemen were a special militia, and what was unique about them is that they had to be ready at a moment's notice. Their musket needed to be loaded, their powder needed to be dry, and they needed to be ready to go as soon as their commander called. And that's the picture that the New Testament presents of the Christian. The New Testament presents the Christian waiting, waiting at a moment's notice for the Lord to return. Jesus said it will come like a thief in the night that we'll be living our lives, and then just like that, he'll be there. So we are to live our lives looking up, looking up with expectation, and in that posture, living our life in such a way of expectancy. We don't want to be caught off guard. We don't want to be caught sleeping. You remember the parable of the ten virgins? Jesus tells this parable in Matthew 25. He says, the kingdom of God is like this. This is what my return will be like. He says there were 10 virgins. They all had lamps to come and, and greet the bridegroom. But there was a problem. Five didn't have oil in their lamps. And then when the bridegroom was delayed, they fell asleep. And then all of a sudden, somebody announced, the bridegroom is coming, the bridegroom is coming. And they go out, the 10, uh, the, the, the ten bridesmaids go out with their lamps 
And what five realize is that they don't have oil in their lamps. They say, can we borrow some? The other five say, no, you're going to have to go into the village and, and try and buy some oil. And so they leave, and then the Lord comes back, and then they go into the wedding hall. And then by the time the other five come, it's too late. So the picture is that of vigilance that we're ready fit for when the Lord returns. Paul says, 1 Timothy 6.14, he says, keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach, reproach until the appearing, same word, epiphany, of our Lord Jesus Christ. He says in 1 Thessalonians 5, so then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Keep awake and be sober. We have vision turned towards the sky waiting for the Lord's return. So that's the, that's the expectation for the believer regarding the Lord's second coming. And that's what I want you to think about. Whenever we celebrate Christmas, whenever we're celebrating the Lord's first return, first coming, it is always to point us forward to what will happen in the future. Now, as we wait, I want to give you four truths this morning about the Lord's second coming. Four truths that you need to know about the Lord's second coming as we wait. First, the Lord's coming will be visible. The Lord's coming will be visible. By that I mean you'll see it with these things right here in your head, your ocular devices, your eyes. You will see the Lord coming. I want you to turn to the book of Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, this is, Luke records the ascension of our Lord, beginning in verse 9, it says this, when Jesus had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Now that cloud is not a regular cloud, that cloud is a Shekinah glory cloud of God. So Jesus is lifted up from the earth. He's taken in a cloud, and he's taken up, his, his resurrection body taken up into heaven. Now, verse 10, while the disciples are stargazing, you know, they're stargazing into heaven. Of course they are. That's what we would be doing as well. He says, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven listen very carefully, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So when the Lord returns, he will come the same way. They saw him go, taken in the cloud, he will come again in the cloud, and people will see him. This is what the entire New Testament teaches. The writer of Hebrews, let me give you some cross-references, Hebrews 9, 28. He says, Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. That word appear is huraho, which means to see. It means to be visible. It's a specific word in reference to eyesight. So he says, when he appears a second time, you will see him. And he will come, he says, not to deal with sin, 
but to save those who eagerly await him. Jesus said, do you remember what he said when he was on trial? He said to the Sanhedrin, Matthew 26, 64, he says, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He says, you will see me, Sanhedrin. This is the the group that condemned Christ. He says, the next time you see me after the resurrection, you're gonna see me coming on the clouds of heaven and it will be coming in judgment. I emphasize this. I emphasize this because many teach that the Lord's second coming will merely be a spiritual coming. It'll merely be a spiritual coming. It won't be a physical, bodily coming. There is a sense, Jesus said when he was in the upper room in John 14, he says, when I send the Holy Spirit, I will come to you. Do you remember when he said that? So there is a sense where Jesus has come to us spiritually. You remember when you, when you trust Christ, what do, what do children often say? I invited who into my heart? Jesus into my heart. I invited Jesus into my heart. I've trusted Christ. And in a, that in a sense, that's true. Jesus has come in the person of the Holy Spirit. There's another sense where Jesus came when Jerusalem was judged in 70 AD. Remember, Jerusalem was, was sacked the, by the emperor uh, Titus. Uh, the, the stones were overturned, and there's a real sense where Jesus came back in judgment, spiritually speaking. But what are the angels saying about the second coming? It will be visible. You will see him. So that's first. The Lord's coming will be visible. Second, the Lord's coming will be verifiable. The Lord's coming will be verifiable. What do I mean by that? I mean, you won't miss it. (laughs) You won't miss it. You won't be at a basketball game and, and come out and say, hey, did you hear what happened? No, what happened? Jesus came back. Oh, man, let's turn on the news. Won't be like that. You won't miss it. It will be verifiable. I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. And let me see where I'm going to pick this up. This is um, I'm going to pick it up in verse 24. But let me let me say this before we look at what Jesus says in Matthew 24. The Bible is very clear, explicit, that when the Lord returns, he is going to return to the Mount of Olives right outside the gates of Jerusalem. That's a prophecy from Zechariah 14.4. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem. Listen, on the east in the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. So Jesus is going to come back. We know where he's going to come. He's going to be at the Mount of Olives. So if you're going with us to Jerusalem, we are going to go to the Mount of Olives. We might just stay there and, and wait for him to come. But seriously, that, we know that's where he's coming because the scripture has told us. Now, we won't miss it. It's going to be verifiable. I want you to see this. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, verse 24 of Matthew 24, he says, false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, even the believer. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, 
do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. And then look what he says. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming be of the Son of Man. It will be like lightning. You won't miss it. What's interesting what Jesus says here is he says that he comes from where? The east. Coming east to west. Jesus, when he came into Jerusalem for his crucifixion, Passion Week, Palm Sunday, where did he come? From Bethany. From the east to the Mount of Olives. And he goes in to Jerusalem where he'll be arrested. Where does he come from the second time? From the east. The east. East is very significant. The temple, the door of the temple faced east. Guess where the door of the tabernacle always faced? East. Guess where the entrance to the Garden of Eden faced? East. The word orient, you know what the word orient means? The east. When we say orient yourself, what does that mean? It means turn east, turn yourself to God. When we say reorient, we mean you fix your life and you turn to the east. Jesus is going to come from the east to the west to the Mount of Olives, then into Jerusalem. And look what Jesus says. This is kind of a grisly illustration he uses. Verse 28, he says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. What does he mean by that? Any of you ever been hunting? You're out on the property, and you see the vultures circling. What does that mean? It means there's a corpse there. It's a sign. You don't miss it. You know what's taking place. Jesus, Jesus is saying the same thing. He's saying, you're not going to miss this. You won't miss it you know it's going to be taking place. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. So that's second, the Lord's coming will be verifiable. Third, the Lord's coming will be vanquishing. What do I mean by vanquishing? You can see I'm using these V words. I mean he's going to get rid of the bad guys. That's what it means to vanquish. You conquer those that are evil. I want you to turn now to the last book of the Bible, to Revelation 19. To Revelation chapter 19. Because here, John gives a picture of the vanquishing, conquering Christ. It, it is a spellbinding depiction of our Lord. It is absolutely breathtaking to look at. And I want you to look at verse 11 of chapter 19. Verse 11 of chapter 19. Look what John says. He has this vision. He says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. Jesus comes on a white horse. You know, in, in ancient battle, the commander would always ride on the horse. If you wanted to win a battle, you needed heavy cavalry, you needed, uh, you needed soldiers on horseback, and the general officer would be commanding from a horse. So as Christ, he comes back riding on a white horse, 
And John says the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. He is the essence of faithfulness, and he is the essence of truth. You remember when Jesus was standing before Pontius Pilate, Paul, said, Paul says this in 1 Timothy 6. He says, when Jesus stood before Pilate, he made the good confession, and Jesus was found faithful. Remember, Pilate asked Jesus, he said, what are you about, Jesus? What, are, what, what, what is with you? And Jesus says, I came to declare the truth and to make it known. You remember what Pilate said in response to Jesus? What is truth? What is aletheia? What is it? Let me tell you what truth is. It's a person. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So he's coming back, the one who is true. And when he comes, that judgment role will be reversed. It'll be the one who is true and Pilate reporting to him. He is called faithful and true. Isaiah 11.5 says, Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. He is faithful. He is true. He is righteous. And look at this description of the Lord in verse 12. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. The flames of fire represent his power. The crowns represent his authority. Some people have authority, but they don't have power. Jesus, is, in his essence, is powerful. His eyes are flames of fire. And he has the crowns over the kingdoms of this earth. And yet he is God. And, and for that, there are some things that we don't know about an infinite God and that is why he has a name written that no one knows but himself. We will spend eternity exploring the depths of who Jesus is. And in a million years, we will not exhaust, have exhausted the Lord Jesus Christ. There are some things that are too wonderful for us to ever even imagine about him. So he has a secret name. And then verse 13, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. I was in Houston a couple years ago, and I, I took my grandfather, Charles Castleberry, to the Houston Medical Center, and we were waiting. He ended up being diagnosed with cancer, subsequently passed away two months after the fact. But we were sitting there in the waiting room, and he brought up this verse. Revelation 19.13. He said, Grant, what does your Bible say? And I read, he's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. He said, robe's not the proper word. You know what the King James translates that word as? Vesture. Vesture. It's not a bathrobe that you get out of the shower at the hotel, put on, go get ice. This is a royal garment. This is what a king would, would wear. It's a vesture. It is the garment of somebody coming to take names. It is dignified. And look what he says about it. It is dipped in blood. 
It is dipped in blood. And at first you might think that's representative of the blood of the cross. That would be a possible explanation for why his robe is dipped in blood. But that's not why his robe is dipped in blood. You know what the prophet said about his vesture, his garment? It's dipped in the blood of his enemies. It's dipped in the blood of his enemies. Isaiah 63, 3. Their lifeblood splattered on my garments and stained my apparel. Over and over again. It is the blood of the enemies of God. And his name is the word of God. What does that sound like? Remember John 1, 1? In the beginning, the word, the logos, the, 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 the great logic of the universe was with God. And the word was what? Was God. He was in the beginning with God. Everything was created through him. He is the word of God. What that means is that Jesus Christ, the man Jesus Christ, is the full disclosure of who God is. When he comes, it is God coming. It is God coming. He is the divine representative. Truly God, truly man. He is the God-man. Verse 14, look at verse 14. And the armies of heaven are arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Now, Jesus has an army of angels, does he not? He is the captain of the, the armies of heaven. The angels come with the Lord Jesus Christ. When the Lord returns, an army of angels is coming with him. That is clear over and over in Scripture. But that's not who this army is. You know who this army is? It's the army of the believers. It's all of the believers. All the way from Adam and Seth and Eve, all the way to Billy Graham. It's the whole panorama of every single person who has trusted in Christ from the beginning until now. And they wear these white robes. John tells us in Revelation, he says in, in Revelation 6, 11, they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. Next chapter in Revelation 7, 14, he says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So these are the saints whose souls have departed to be with the Lord. So do you know a Christian who's passed away recently and gone to be with the Lord? That's them. If you die, this is you. This is what's incredible about the Bible. Every other book you read is a book outside of you. The Bible is a book where you enter its pages and you read about your future. When you go to be with the Lord, you will come with your garments cleansed in the blood of the Lamb, wearing a white robe, 
on white horses. Isn't that remarkable? You will come back to vanquish Christ's enemies. Look at verse 15. This is not a literal sword. He says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Revelation speaks a lot. It's an, it's an apocalyptic book. It, it speaks with metaphor, symbolism. The, the sword is, is representative of the word of Christ. All Jesus has to say is a word and his enemies are done. That's it. He says a word, they die. It's a word of his mouth and he strikes down, John says, the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. So when he comes, he will strike down all of his enemies with a word from his mouth. That is the power of the word of God. Isaiah says, Isaiah eleven four, he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Psalm 2, great messianic psalm. David said, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So here's the picture. Jesus in his first coming came in mercy to save. Jesus, the name Yeshua means to save. He came to save, to not execute judgment. Over and over, people wanted him to execute judgment. He said, now's not the time. I came to seek and save that which is lost. When he comes the second time, he's not coming on a mission of mercy. He's coming on a mission of judgment. I think that's, that's very clear. Look at verse 16. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. On his vesture, he has this title. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords, and it's written on his thigh, imprinted, I guess, so no one will be able to miss it. Paul says when he comes, 2 Thessalonians 2.8, that he will kill the lawless one, the Antichrist, with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing, bring him to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So what is our response to this? We're waiting the Lord's return. When he comes, he's coming with eyes of flaming fire, the whole host of heaven, the angels, the saints on white horses and robes. He's coming in judgment. And our response to that should be worship. Our response to that should be worship in awe and reverence. He is coming. He is coming in glory. And if that's true, then really nothing else matters. Nothing else matters than your preparation for that day, that you are vigilant and awaiting that day, that you're doing everything you can to prepare yourself for that day. And it is true. He is coming. And what I would say to you, if you have not trusted Christ, trust and repent today. Don't wait for that day. It'll be too late then. It'll be too late. Repent today and rejoice later. Repent today of your sin and trust Christ and rejoice later. Prepare yourself. Stay awake. 
So that's the, the third truth I want you to see about the Lord's coming, that he's coming to, to vanquish. Fourth and finally, and this is the great news, this is the great hope for the Christian, for the believer, is that the Lord's coming will be victorious. The Lord's coming will be a day of victory. The victory belongs to the Lord. And what the New Testament teaches is that when the Lord returns, three things will subsequently happen. One, there will be a general resurrection of the dead, of both the the just and the unjust, the believer and the unbeliever. Everyone will be resurrected and given a body that is suited for their eternal existence. Second, once you receive a resurrection body, you will stand before Christ. That's what's called the great white throne judgment. If you are a believer, you will be clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And Jesus will say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter the eternity that God has promised for you. If you are an unbeliever, you will be cast into the lake of fire with the devil and his demons. And then... You read Revelation 21 and 22, there's going to be an eternal state. There's going to be an eternal state, a new heavens and a new earth. Now, I want you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians 4. So this is one of the last of Paul's letters in terms of the order of the the sequence. If you get to 1 Timothy, you've gone too far. I want you to turn to, to 1 Thessalonians 4. And I'm going to pick it up in verse 13 because I want you to see what is going to happen to us in terms of this victory when the Lord returns. This passage is meant to be a great encouragement to the Christian. It's meant to encourage us as as we see family members that are believers and friends that are believers and as we face our own death, it's meant to remind us that death is not the ultimate end. Look at verse 13. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep. Asleep is the the terminology he uses to apply to the dead people. He says, we don't want you to be uninformed about those that are sleeping, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. He says, for since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We saw that in in Revelation 19, didn't we? For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now I want to say something right here because this passage has been very confusing. There's been much debate over this passage. There has been uh, much ink spilled over this passage, and here's why. Many teach from this passage a belief called the secret rapture that precedes the Lord's coming. If you've ever seen the the old Kirk Cameron uh, Left Behind trilogy, that's, that's the teaching of the secret rapture. It was popularized by Hal Lindsey's book, The Late Great Planet Earth, which came out in the 60s. I think it sold like two million copies. It was earlier popularized by a Bible called the Schofield Reference Bible. I grew up 
going to Schofield Memorial Church in Dallas. And so what I was taught, what I believed for, for much of my life, is that there were two comings of the Lord Jesus Christ. First, a secret spiritual coming, a secret rapture. And what I was taught happened, what I believed happened, is that the Christians went poof. Jesus came back and they were gone. And you, and you see the movie, plane, Christians were gone, so planes crash, cars crash, people are missing, and people don't know what's happened, what, what's taken place here. The, the unbelievers are, are left trying to figure it out. Now, listen, good and godly Christians disagree on this text. Many of the Christians that I respect most teach a two-coming secret rapture doctrine from this text. But in studying it for myself, I've come to believe that this text is the same exact event as the second coming of our Lord. And Martin Lloyd-Jones was very helpful to me in seeing that, as is Charles Spurgeon. So there's, there's great, great men of God that have landed on either side of this. But let me give you five reasons why I believe that this text right here isn't teaching a secret rapture where the Christians are going to go poof and go back to heaven, but why he's actually describing the second coming. Stay with me, all right? Stay with me right here. First, no one in the history of the church until about 1830 interpreted 1 Thessalonians 4 to teach a secret rapture. You go read the history books. Nobody, no commentator, no preacher before 1830 ever taught that there was a secret rapture. So where did the doctrine come from? Well, there's a famous preacher in London named Edward Irving, really great preacher. And Edward Irving in the late 1820s, his church in London became more charismatic. And there was a girl in his church that had a vision, a prophetic vision of a secret rapture. And this is what, you go read the Old Plymouth Brethren, that was the denomination of Irving. The Old Plymouth Brethren all say this, that it came from a vision from Irving's church, and then Irving started teaching that. Now, there was another famous Plymouth Brethren named John Nelson Darby, who was a phenomenal preacher, and he took that doctrine and popularized it. And people started believing that, teaching that late. Uh, mid-1800s, late-1800s, and really it became the standard uh, doctrine of, of conservative evangelicals as a result of, of Darby's influence and later Schofield's influence. But my point in saying that is that nobody believed that until 1830, and so there's an old adage, if it's new, it's probably what? Not true. Second, Jesus said, Jesus said very explicitly in, in the Olivet Discourse, no one will know the hour of his coming, not even the Son of Man, not even the angels. Nobody will know the hour of his coming. But get this, if you have a secret rapture, you know exactly when the Lord's coming. Supposedly, it would come exactly when? Seven years after the rapture occurred. You could set your clock by it. So that would negate people not knowing when the Lord comes. Third, third, the text itself, if you actually read 
the passage and study the passage, the text says nothing about the Lord coming in secret. Nothing about the Lord coming in secret where the world doesn't see him. In fact, it says the opposite. Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's a, that's a threefold announcement. First, the cry of God. Do you remember in, in Exodus 20 and 21 when God was speaking on Mount Sinai, the children of Israel said, we, stop speaking to us, we're going to die. Don't speak. This is a voice that will break the windows. And then he says the, the, the shout of an archangel, and then the blast of the trumpet. Now listen, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 52, he says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. So Paul says that this is the last trumpet. Now let me ask you a question. Do you think that this will be audible or inaudible? It sounds very audible to me. So if you take, the, the, there's a new Left Behind movie coming out, all right? If you go see it, think about this. If there is going to be a secret rapture, then we have to believe that the voice of Christ the voice of the archangel and the sounding of the trumpet of God are much like a cosmic dog whistle where it's only the believer who hears it and the unbeliever doesn't hear it. I find that very hard to believe from this text. Fourth, fourth, look at verse 16. The same glory cloud is mentioned here that we know is present at the second coming. Remember Acts chapter 1, what did the angel say? That when he goes, he will come in the same way, in the cloud, in the cloud, in the glory cloud. Look at verse 16. He says, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the cloud. We'll, we'll go up into that Shekinah glory clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Now, there's nothing here that says that the saints are then taken back to heaven. You read the text. There's nothing that says that the believer, once he's resurrected, is then taken back up into heaven. It doesn't say that. Here, this is my fifth argument. The purpose of the rapture is to welcome Christ back to this earth. So, let me explain where we get that word rapture. You see in verse 17, that phrase caught up, caught up. It's the Greek word harpazo, which when was translated uh, into Latin, was, tra was translated with the Latin word rapire, which is where we get the word rapture, the English word rapture. And what it means is to be snatched up, to be taken up by uh, a, a force. So, for example, the same word is used in Acts 8 to describe the snatching of Philip. Remember, Philip was speaking to the Ethiopian eunuch. All of a sudden, he was snatched. He was taken somewhere different. Same word, uh, harpazo. So, we're, we're going to be snatched up. We are going to be taken up. Why are the believers taken up 
to meet the Lord in the air. Let me tell you why I think that happens. In the ancient world, when the emperor would come back from a military victory, do you know what would happen? All the people of the town, all the people of the village would go out and meet the emperor and then bring him back as a welcoming parade back into the city. And that's what the believers are doing. We're raptured up to meet with the Lord in the air and welcome back to this earth that he is now conquered and is going to reign over. Remember the parable of the, the, the bridesmaids, the bridegroom. What do the bridesmaid, bridesmaids do when they go out and meet the Lord? Do they go back with him to the, to the bridegroom's house? Where do they go? They go back to the wedding chamber. They go back. So we go up and meet the Lord in the air, and then we come back to this earth that he is going to remake, and he is going to, to, to destroy by fire and make a, a new heavens and new earth, but we welcome him back where he is going to rule forever and ever. So let me give you the order, just the sequence of events. Christ, verse 16, look at verse 16, he will descend from heaven. So Christ will come, same way that we saw him go. He will descend with heaven, we saw with the, with the, the shouts and the trumpet. Then, second thing that will happen, verse, end of verse 16, the dead in Christ will rise first. So the believers who are, who are already in the grave, they will come out first and receive their resurrection bodies. They will come out first. So you're going to see your grandma, your, your grandfather, your, your, your mom, your dad, if they were believers. You're going to see uh, different saints, Fanny Crosby, all sorts of people. They will go out first, and they will be in the air meeting the Lord. And then, verse 17, third, we who are alive, who are left, then after the saints go up to meet the Lord, then we will be harpazo. We will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Now, Paul says this, at this moment, this is 1 Corinthians 15. He says, when this happens, death is defeated. There's no more death at this point. There's no more sin at this point. He says, this is 1 Corinthians 15, 55, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So death will be done. We will have a resurrection body. We will no longer be able to sin. And by the way, if you read Daniel chapter 12, John chapter 5, this is John chapter 5, uh, Jesus says, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So after we meet the Lord in the air and come down, the unbelievers will be re resurrected and bodies fit for their eternal state, and then the Lord will judge he will judge the living and the dead. You can read about that in Matthew 25. The sheep will be where? On the right, and the goats will be on the left. Jesus will judge, and he will make a new heavens and a new earth. But the point is, is that that is the day of our victory. The day of our victory. 
Jesus comes back and it's victorious for us. This fight against sin is no more. This battle against death is no more. The persecution and tribulation that we endure from the world is no more. And so in response to that, in response to all of this that's taking place, you are here today for a specific reason. And I ask you, I plead with you, I beg you, don't wait until death or that day to try to get right with God. Today is the day of salvation. Trust in Christ today so you can rejoice tomorrow. The day of his coming. Trust in Christ today. Second, over and over again, Jesus said this, I'm coming like a thief in the night. It'll be like a day that it'll be a normal day. You won't think it's that day, but I am coming. So he says, stay awake. Stay awake. Be vigilant. If you're dealing with secret sin, repent, confess, put it to death. Stay awake. Be a spiritual minuteman. Keep your powder dry and your musket ready. Third, joy. Joy. The victory is already assured. Jesus is going to win. So when you look out and you see what's going on, you see Congress passing this so-called Respect for Marriage Act. You see all these things happening. You see uh, what children are being taught, that, that they're, they're not their biological sex, that they can identify as whatever they, as you see all the darkness in the world, all the darkness in the world, rest assured, Christian, we know the end of the story. His name is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and he is coming back in victory for our victory as well. So trust in him. Trust in him and be courageous. Be courageous. Remember when the children of Israel entered the promised land, what did Joshua say to them? Be strong, be very courageous. We know that God has given us this land. We know that God has given us the victory. Same thing. Be strong and courageous. We know God has given us the victory. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for these truths, that you are coming again, that you are coming, and it will be our victory. Death will be defeated. Sin will be vanquished forevermore. And all those who trust in you will receive this resurrection body for a new heavens and a new earth. And so, Lord, we look to that day as our blessed hope. That is our hope, Lord. And we say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come deliver us from this body of death. Come deliver us from this world. Lord, may we have our eyes set on you with vigilance. May we look to you and hope in your future coming. We say all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website capitalcommunitychurch.com.